Psalm 24, beginning with the first verse, and this is the word of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his voice to what is false and does not swear it deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Enjoy me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word does stand forever, that your word is true and that's certain, that, Father, your word speaks to us here now. So, Father, in this psalm, uh, Father, we're grateful for the hope it gives us and the challenge it gives us as your people. So, Father, give us understanding of it by your spirit now. Plot to the way we think into the way we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tis the day after Christmas, and all through the house not a creature is yet stirring, except a crumb-craving mouse. The children and teens still sleep in their beds, thoughts of video games, toys, and clothes filling their heads. The stockings now empty are tossed over there by the trash bag of wrapping paper once used with great care. The mom and her kerchief and the dad and his cap hear the alarm going off and give the snooze button a tap. But inside their heads, there's a row such a clatter. They toss and they turn it together say, what's the matter? But they already know there's a lot to be done because Christmas was yesterday, a day filled with fun. Now the tree must come down and bills must be paid, clothes taken back and diet plans made. So get if they must and have coffee fresh brewed to enjoy a quiet moment before the kids come intrude. Tis the day after Christmas that life still does go on. But what's different now that Christmas has come and has gone? Uh, think about it. You made the preparations, uh, the celebrations. You got all the advertisements. You did all the shopping. You put the lights up. Uh, you heard endless Christmas music freely mixing all I want for Christmas is you with all holy night. Uh, uh, and, it, and it seems like people were expecting something to happen. But what? I mean, is there any wonder with all the, uh, the shopping, the lights, the music, that so many people miss what Christmas is really all about? Uh, so how might we define a real Christmas celebration? Well, the true celebration is the one that's looking for the return of the king who came once that morning in Bethlehem and has promised to come again. It's celebration that always leads to anticipation. And the question for each of us today is, is whether or not Christmas uh, this year, our celebrations have helped us prepare for his coming, uh, for the return of King Jesus. And will it help us keep that hope fueled all year through? 
Do we have the hope that Jesus could come back today? Or was Christmas only a momentary thought about Jesus' return that we, that we threw out with the wrapping paper? And so our psalm this morning is a Christmas psalm. Uh, it focuses on the coming of the King. And so what does our psalm say to us as we reflect on the celebration of Christmas? Uh, how does it impact our post-Christmas lives? Let's, let's go to the text and see. First, what prompted David to write this psalm? See, if we're really going to understand it, we've got to look, what were, the, what were the things going on that made David write in the first place? Uh, what were the circumstances? And is there any future event that David's pointing to in what he writes? Uh, so first, what's the occasion of David's life? Most would agree the backdrop seems to be when David brings the Ark of the Covenant uh, to his new capital city of Jerusalem. One writer described it this way. He said, it's, it's difficult, though, for us in the 21st century to, to really appreciate fully the importance of the ark uh, that it had for the people. Because to them, it did represent the presence of God's kingship among them and over them. Now, the ark itself was a box about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep. Uh, it's made out of acacia wood. It was covered with pure gold. Uh, and uh, the solid gold lid is what we call the mercy seat. And it had the two cherubim over it with the wings, and, and that was the precise dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God among the people. Um, and so it was a symbol of kingship, God's kingship. And there were three things in it, uh, in the ark, the Ten Commandments to represent the Word of God, Aaron's rod that budded that tells us of the power and authority of God, and then the manna that speaks of the provision of God for our needs. And it was shrouded in, in mystery. Uh, it was supposed to be kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle as it symbolized God's, pre- symbolized God's presence and His holiness. And because of that, only the chief priest ever saw it. And he only ever saw it once a year. However... When they transported the tabernacle from place to place uh, there in the wilderness, they had to carry the ark separately from that. And so they did carry it as they moved from place to place in the wilderness. They carried it through the time of the conquest of the promised land. And then when they entered the land, they put the tabernacle in Shiloh and placed the, the, the ark and the covenant there. You remember one time the Israelites tried to use it as a good luck charm. Remember, they're going into battle against the Philistines, and they thought, well, you know, if we take in the Ark of the Covenant, God will surely bless us and give us great victory. And what did it bring? Nothing but defeat and tragedy. In fact, the, the Philistines captured it, but then when it caused them a lot of problems, they gave it back. Uh, they didn't want it anymore. And, um, and so it was taken to the city of Beth Shemesh. And while it was there, some of the men in the town, 70 of them, in fact, got real curious. wonder what's still in the Ark. And so they opened it up, and when they did that, what? They all dropped dead. If you find the Ark of the Covenant, don't open it, folks, okay? I'm just going to, I might not have a lot of wisdom, but I can tell you, don't do that. Uh, but anyway, uh, they all dropped dead. Uh, and, um, and so then the Ark just laid there and neglected in Kirith Jerem for the next 20 years. So after David becomes king, what does he do? He wants to, he, he's got his head for seven years, he's got his new capital city of Jerusalem. 
He decides he wants to bring the ark there, and he's excited. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're moving someplace, what do you do? You, you get a, well, they wouldn't get a U-Haul. They would get a donkey, and, and you know, they'd get a cart and, and put it on there, and that's where you moved your furniture. And that's what David tried. Um, and, uh, now, of course, we know the law of God said don't do it that way. Well, what happened? The, uh, the oxen that were pulling it uh, stumbled, and the ark started to slide off the, 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 the wagon. And a well-meaning guy named Uzzah did what any of us would have probably done. Starting to fall off, you're the closest one. What would you do? You put your hand up there and, and hold it in place. And he did. And what happened to him? He dropped dead. All right. There's a theme here developing uh, from that. Um, uh, and the huge celebration parade came to an end. And, and, and they left the ark right where it was. It was the house of Obed-Edom. Uh, Edom. And, uh, uh, and then David watched. And God, for three months, really blessed Obed-Edom. And we know he was a Gittite. That means he's from Gath. He was probably just a Philistine. He was benefiting from the presence of the ark of God's people. So after three months, David decided he wanted the blessings in Jerusalem. And this time, he obeyed God's instructions. He had the priest carry it with poles going through the, the rings that were on each of the four corners. And they brought it safely into Jerusalem. And there was great celebration. Now, as David writes this, the death of those 70 men and of Uzzah demonstrated the holiness of God, the holiness of God's Word. That's certainly reflected in these middle verses in David's comments about who can ascend the hill of the Lord, uh, who can come before Yahweh, a holy God, who can stand before the ark, before the presence of God, who can come before God. And if, if that's the historical context that prompted the writing of the psalm, then let's ask the question, what does it point to? What was he anticipating? Um, because it, it's obvious in these final verses that we read uh, that David's not writing about the coming of some mere mortal king. He's writing about Messiah. He's writing about the king of glory coming. Uh, and we remember Old Testament prophets uh, like David tended to see the coming of Messiah uh, as one event, and they would telescope what we would call the first coming and the second coming into that single solitary event. And so let me suggest several things this psalm points to. First is the very backdrop of our Christmas celebration. The literal coming of Jesus the very first time uh, as a baby born in Bethlehem. At the age of eight days, he was probably taken to Jerusalem for his circumcision. Certainly, uh, we know he was taken there for the offering as, as he was the firstborn of Mary's purification offerings. And they went into the temple. That's the occasion when Simeon blessed his people. Uh, blessed, rather, blessed uh, Messiah. And he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. And so there we see the king is present. And he's preparing for battle. The second time thing David might be pointing to is, is 33 years later. Jesus comes as a king into uh, sitting on a donkey. It's just prior to the crucifixion. It's what we call Palm Sunday. And he enters the city prepared to conquer sin and death and to win the victory for us. He's the king of glory who is present and ready for battle. Then the third is his ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection confirming his, his victory in history. 
And he's welcomed into the heavenly Jerusalem. He's the king victorious in battle. And then the fourth would be what we're anticipating with our Christmas celebration. Uh, The return of King Jesus, when his triumphal work in history and his reign is brought to a conclusion and is ultimately known by all. He's the king who will once again be visibly present. And this time, he'll be recognized as the king of kings and lord of lords. So as David writes, he's primarily thinking of this first entry, then of God's presence into Jerusalem via the Ark of the Covenant. But as a prophet, he's ranging far into the future, anticipating the events of Jesus' first coming uh, a thousand years later, and then on into time. Uh, Today, we're still anticipating when the King of Glory returns finally. So let's now, <coughs> with that back to a look at the, the, um, the, the verses themselves to see how we should prepare what it's done. First, we have a Christmas perspective, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So here's a question for you this morning. Whose world do we live in? It's much debated today, but we know the answer. David's emphatic here. This is Yahweh's world. Uh, and, and so is everything in it. You know, so one of the things you sometimes remember from Kids of the Kingdom programs and those sorts of things is, is particular songs. And the last year we were in Virginia, which was a very long time ago, they did a, a musical about King Wenceslas. And, uh, but I still remember the, the, the main song. Uh, and I, you can't get the tune out of your head. I'd sing it for you, and you'd, it's stuck in yours. But, but it was everything that is, is his. Everything that is, is his. Uh, and that's true. Uh, and so that's quite a stewardship statement that David makes here. Uh, it's sweeping. It's far-reaching. It means we have to think in terms of everything we have belongs to God. We're merely stewards. We're responsible for how we use what he entrusts to us. But make no mistake, it's his. You know, we may think we own our home. We may think the bank or the mortgage company owns our home. Uh, But let me ask you something. Who's going to hold that title in 100 years, said Jesus Terry? Not you, not the mortgage company, not the bank. Somebody else. We don't even know what's going to be. Uh, is going to have it. Somebody else. So really, who owns it? And that's uh, then the implications for us at Christmas. Here's the question. How did we use the resources entrusted to us by God? Did we use the resources God gave us to create hope this Christmas? But I don't mean this. One of the reasons we give, we give gifts because God's the greatest gifter. We're imitating God. We're made in His image. Um, but one of the reasons we give gifts is uh, to people is to create in them an expectation of getting something for nothing. All right? Getting something for nothing. And that's what a gift is. And it's good that we learn anticipation of receiving something that we did not earn that's motivated by the giver's love for us, 
so that we learn to anticipate the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we do nothing to earn or deserve. Uh, we receive Him based on Him giving Himself and our earn, His earning uh, uh, our salvation, not us. So do we use our resources, not just at Christmas, but really all the year through, to help people anticipate the return of the King or to indulge our materialistic desires? Are we using our resources entrusted to us to reach out to others or to indulge our small circle of, of uh, friends and our family? Again, the perspective should be everything that is, is His. It's why at Christmas, it's that way every day. So does what we do with our money reflect that we acknowledge that? Second, we want to ask a question about Christmas introspection here. Ask ourselves the hard questions. Now, are we ready for Christmas right now? Are we ready for the return of the king? Are we ready to worship the returning king? Look at verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Or right, at the hill of the Lord is the city of Zion. It's where David has placed the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and... Uh, Quite frankly, these are mighty, stiff requirements to come to worship. Uh, our hearts as worshipers are in view here. Clean hands point to our outward actions. A pure heart points to our inward character that should be reflected in those actions. And it talks about lift up our soul. Who among us totally avoids idolatry? And who's totally honest in all our relationships, all the time with other people, as verse 4 describes? And the answer is what? None of us. None of us. So based on that, who among us is qualified to approach God in worship? I mean, I'm not. And you're not. Um, search the annals of the history of the world. Who can approach a holy God in worship based on these requirements. I mean, these standards are incredibly high. And only one person has ever met the standards, and that is Jesus himself. He alone meets the qualifications. And as we know, as the New Testament teaches, he meets those qualifications for us in our place. So that's the perspective that helps us understand verses 5 and 6. Let me just say these are verses that are really hard to translate, uh, and, and, and a bit difficult, but ESV, I think, gets it so we can understand it somewhat. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. All right, who's the he? Well, since only Jesus meets the qualification, I'm going to suggest it's, it's Jesus. Uh, and the immediate application is to him. And the word for righteousness uh, is sometimes translated as vindication. Uh, some of your translations would probably have that. Jesus, the only perfect person ever to live, receives the blessing from God, receives vindication from God for the way he lived a perfect life 
by being declared righteous. So we know that from our New Testament perspective, that that righteousness of Jesus is for us. It's a gift God gives to His people who put their faith in Him so that we too can approach God in worship. We can stand before Him. It's what enables those described as the generation in verse 6. Our hope's found in seeking Him. That is, in seeking Jesus, who's in fact God. Now remember, this psalm is poetry, has imaginative language and some literary freedom. And so some suggest that you look at these verses, almost read them in in reverse order. Um, So that seeking Jesus is the key to our hope there in verse 6. And if we do that in faith, we receive the righteousness of Jesus in verse 5. And if we have that righteousness, it leads to our sanctification. It leads to the type of behavior described in verse 4. And that's what truly prepares us for Jesus' return, even after Christmas. But if we've not received the righteousness of Jesus as a gift from God, uh, then we're not prepared for His return, even if we celebrated Christmas yesterday. So, using a bit of Christmas introspection, how did Christmas help us prepare for Christ's return? When Jesus is the one we're seeking, we realize that He alone is is our hope to one day stand before a holy God. Does this lead us to anticipate and desire the coming of Jesus? Which is what the psalm will end with. Are we filled with expectation about His coming? Or are we simply ready to get back into our routine tomorrow, whatever normal is for us? Does our Christmas celebration motivate us to live holy lives in the meantime as we wait? Or to not care about holiness? Because in the, in the final four verses, we find what I would call correct post-expectation, Christmas expectations. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. Or as we sometimes say, can you beat that? All right. So just what are we anticipating? I mean, the reality is when Jesus came that first time, He was King. He's who He was. But very few people took note. In fact, when those magi show up sometime during the first two years of Jesus' life to come and worship and give Him gifts, to worship the one born, the King of the Jews, it's pretty obvious He'd escaped notice. Nobody knew who he was, despite this glowing description from Psalm 24. And in the, these final verses, the king is identified, he's a, he's a, he's a warrior. He's a, a returning warrior. He's, a, he's strong and mighty, mighty in battle. How can we say that? Well, for good reason. He's fought the greatest battle in all of history. He fought Satan at the cross, and he defeated Satan. Uh, and that took place, and that's, it's all over with. 
And so certainly we can look and see how this king came from Bethlehem and into Jerusalem. And we can see the triumphant entry where Jesus, having lived a perfect life for us, came to die for us. And the cries of Hosanna rang out that he'd come. Then a few short days later, he goes to the cross. And he dies for the sins of his people. He bears our punishment in our place. Then triumphantly ascends into heaven. And he declares he will come again. And this time, in an obvious manner, that all will recognize nobody, nobody will miss the return of the king, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So who is this one we're called to be prepared for? A second time, David goes through the ritual. Now, usually, we know, in in Hebrew, we've talked about before, the repetition is for emphasis. They don't have the words like very much or most or those kinds of things. Uh, They just have the basic words. And so when they want to emphasize something, they they repeat it. Uh, And that's probably the case here. Uh, Some of the Puritans thought, and it's interesting, you think about it, that this repetition is in reference to the two comings of the king. Uh, Again, I don't know that's for sure, but it's certainly a possibility. And then you notice the addition to the title the second time, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord Almighty, Lord Sabaoth, uh, indicates there's a, a worldwide recognition of this king of kings. It's not a mere mortal king. It's not Simba or Aragorn or Tut or Henry or Cyrus or Charlemagne. All right? This is the king of glory. And so we're compelled to worship him. Uh, we are uh, we're called to lift up our heads, to worship the returning king. Uh, and Christmas, it's great practice for that. It's what we've been doing this morning. So what about us? It's an, uh, an intriguing box, and I'm not talking about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that raises tremendous expectations because of getting a wonderful gift on this. And I'm talking about this box here. I know you can see it from here. Uh, it's, a, it's a box from that great store that's done so well across the years, the limited, um, whatever that was. But anyway, uh, they gave this box a few years ago. Let me read what it says on the outside, okay? Because this gets you worked up to think you're really going to get some kind of gift in here, okay? Uh, Happiness is peace on earth, ice skating in the park, seeing someone smile, making spirits bright, a present wrapped with a big red ribbon, the joy of giving, spreading holiday cheer, Unconditional love, being with loved ones, a holiday surprise, a warm cup of cocoa, building a giant snowman, a carriage ride through the park, a kiss on the cheek, a new snowfall, winning a snowball fight, laughing till your sides hurt, being at home for the holidays, a cozy fire, the perfect gift, thinking of that someone special. Don't you wish you had this box? You could put a gift in, all right? Um, so you get expectations of something wonderful inside. So given all that I just said, what do you, what do you think I would put in this? What's in here today? Uh, for many people, it's, it's, it's just what they got out of Christmas this year. Uh, and that is, there's, there's nothing in it. All right? What did they get out of Christmas? Without Jesus, you get nothing. You get nothing. Without Jesus, there is no eternal happiness. Christmas for many has sadly been what I, I remember Gary and Tammy Elliott's first letters from 
Christmas celebrations of Bulgaria. And if y'all think about that, they discovered a, they said a lot of small artificial Christmas trees, um, and Christmas music was placed everywhere. But then they noticed something was missing, and that was any reference to, to Jesus. All the songs they heard played were, were the secular songs. Um, Christmas without Jesus. Christmas without anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Again, without Jesus, there's, there's nothing on Christmas Day. Now, Jewish tradition uh, and teaching sometimes helps us see how these psalms were used by the Jews in worship. One of the interesting things about Psalm 24 is that it was intended to be part of worship the first day of every week. Uh, that they had, so they, 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 they would use this psalm down in worship at the temple every Sunday uh, there. Think about what that means. Think about what it means when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as the king coming on a donkey that first day of the week, that first Sunday. And at that moment, the, the very priest who opposed his coming and who are plotting his demise, when he's marching into the city on a donkey, they're gathered down at the temple singing this psalm. Who is he? This king of glory. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. How ironic. They sing this psalm of praise as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and they miss it. So close, yet so far away. Though Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, he did not enter their hearts. So across the nation, this weekend, thousands and thousands and thousands, millions of people have sung joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing. Little realizing that the, the very uh, coming of Jesus they're singing about, you know, might be today. Yet they're living their lives as if he will never return. They do not have clean hands. They don't have pure hearts. They're not justified in his sight. They're without hope. So instead of singing, Oh, come all you faithful, they might as well be singing, Here comes Santa Claus, for all the good that it does them. And I would just say, if you're here this morning, you do not have the hope of standing joyfully before the coming king. Uh, Let us encourage you to be drawn by his love that, that sent him to earth to die for us. And if that sounds attractive, that's the Spirit of God speaking to you. Uh, Respond to his call, receive his gift. For those believers, we need to use this psalm as a guide for keeping Christmas all year through. We need to remember everything that is, is his. Let's use resources wisely that he entrusts to us. Let's be sure to, uh, we're prepared for his coming. Let's seek to be those with clean hands and a pure heart. May our justification be reflected in our sanctification. May our right standing before God be reflected in our behavior. Finally, let's rejoice in His coming and be committed to declaring that coming to the world around us that indeed Jesus Christ might be praised. See, there are people that don't have a clue to what they missed out on this Christmas. And it may well be Uh, that they will never know unless God chooses to show them through me or you. Tis the day after Christmas and all through the house, not a creature stirring, 
not even that mouse. The decorations will soon be down and filling attic space. But Christmas itself is not forgotten, for Christ has been kept in first place. The children are nestled all snug in their beds, the wonder of Jesus' birth filling their heads. The gifts they received, they know have been given to symbolize God's sending His Son from His heaven. And mom and dad, on this early Sunday morn, understand the significance of why Jesus was born. Their Christmas and their lives built on a rock that will last Faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and for whatever comes to pass. Their hearts are now filled with great expectation, they say. They're ready should the King of glory be coming today. Let's pray. Father, indeed, may we be ready because we practiced yesterday. We practiced all December long. Father, now we anticipate Christ coming again. And Father, is anybody here that doesn't yet uh, know you, doesn't yet know the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Father, indeed, show them your love. Show them Bethlehem. Show them the cross. Show them the resurrection, we pray, today. And draw them, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.